So allow me to introduce to you the historical Magi. Uh, the Magi as a people group first appear in history about 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And the Magi are identified as a tribe or a class within the emerging empire of the Medes, which was located uh, in modern-day uh, Iran. What the tribe of the Levites were to the nation of Israel, the Magi were to many of the Middle Eastern countries and empires during the ancient times. The Magis were a religious priestly tribe that counseled kings and counseled emperors throughout the Middle East for hundreds of years. And because of their influence upon the highest echelons of society, the Magi were a powerful people group. Now, uh, the Old in the Old Testament, the Magi are mentioned several times, believe it or not. And so I'm going to run through some of, of where they're mentioned. In Jerusalem, cha uh, Jerusalem, how about Jeremiah? Uh, in Jeremiah, chapter 39, uh, the, a chief Magi is recorded to be part of the court of Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian Empire. And Xerxes, the... Persian king identified in the book of Esther, Esther is mentioned as having consulted Magi when planning for his invasion of Greece, which history tells us failed. Good job, Magi. <laughs> and uh, in the book of Daniel, references to magicians are most likely corrupted Hebrew translations for the word Magi. Magi and magician uh, coming from the same root word. At about the time of Jesus' birth, the Magi were actually engaged in a process of identifying their own king in their own country. So we find a group of Magi entering into Jerusalem in the latter days of Herod's reign, their journey from ancient Iran to the birthplace of Jesus was most likely driven by one sole scriptures that one sole scripture that they would have had access to due to the Babylonian captivity. And that scripture is from Numbers chapter twenty four, verse seventeen. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. Now, the star that will come out of Jacob is the nation of Israel, and the scepter that will rise out of Israel is a king. I think it's awesome that these historical details coincide and substantiate the biblical account. And with the following historical context in mind, Herod's reaction was understandably one of fear, because Herod sided with Rome. Herod had secured from Caesar Augustus uh, the title of king of the Jews and secured power over what was essentially a buffer state between Rome and the empire of the Medes. Rome was on the rise and the Median empire was uh, decreasing in power. And right smack in between them was modern day Israel. And Herod was uh, placed in power by Caesar Augustus to be the king of the Jews over this uh, buffer state between these two uh, empires. Now, at the time of Jesus' birth, 
Herod was sick and dying, and Caesar Augustus himself, no longer a spring chicken essentially, led Rome as a weakened and compromised military commander. And so a politically strategic and perhaps paranoid Herod might think that the time was ripe for another invasion by the Medes through, into and through his buffer state. So the appearance of the Magi in Jerusalem, probably traveling in force with all the imaginable oriental pomp and most likely accompanied by a cavalry escort to ensure their safe travels into Roman territory, certainly would have alarmed Herod as well as the city of Jerusalem. Now, having left Herod, according to today's scripture, the Magi found their way to the birthplace of Jesus. And there they worshipped him, and they offered gifts. And um, uh, to correct what Dick mentioned earlier, we, we in our mythology, our Christmas uh, carols and so on, we think that there were three Magi. There was probably a lot of Magi. We uh, often think that there are three only because of the three uh, gifts that we'll be discussing today. So today we're going to look at these uh, gifts from the mysterious Magi, beginning with the first, um, point one on your outline. Why the gift of gold? Why the gift of gold? Now, gold, as we all know, for thousands of years, has been and continues to be a precious metal. How precious is gold? Well, uh, if you're investing in gold right now, shake your jewelry if you are, um, and one ounce of gold is worth 1,000, as of Wednesday of this past week, it could have gone up, it could have gone down, but as of Wednesday of this past week, uh, one ounce of gold is worth $1,280. Now, for those of us who are not invested in gold, we're just trying to figure out what exactly is an ounce, right? You're sitting there going, wait, how much is an ounce? And you're thinking of maybe like seven ounce soda cans. Well, I did some research on the old Google. Exactly, I've got... Five American quarters right here. Five American quarters is exactly one ounce. So if this were gold, which I wish it was, uh, this would be worth $1,280. And you're all sitting there thinking, wait, man, I've got like five quarters in the cushions of my seat at home. If it was gold, if only it was gold, Johnny could buy a new Vespa. (laughs) Needless to say, Gold is a precious metal, and perhaps I'm stating the obvious, but the gift of gold was and is appropriate for worshiping God and honoring a king. Now, excluding all the other world religions, which I'm sure had temples which were decorated with gold, excluding all the other world religions and exclusively examining the world of the Bible— We find in the Old Testament, right off the bat, that many pagan idols were shaped in gold. Now, apart from the idols, uh, in Scripture, God outlines the details for the construction of two things, the Ark of the Covenant and the Tabernacle. There's a picture of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, uh, the construction—so God outlines uh, the, the construction of these things— and between the instructions to the Hebrews with regarding, with regarding the building of, or the construction of the Ark of the Covenant, which you're thinking, for, let me fill you in. So what was in the Ark of the Covenant? The Ark of the Covenant held the, was believed to held 
to hold the Ten Commandments, as well as Aaron's uh, staff, which uh, bloomed, and, and a jar of the manna from heaven. They were all believed to be held uh, in the Ark of the Covenant. And in the instructions of constructing the Ark of the Covenant, as well as the tabernacle, and later in the New Testament, or in the Old Testament, uh, we'll talk about the temple. But uh, between Exodus chapter 25 and throughout Deuteronomy, in in the descriptions of how to uh, construct these things, the word gold is used over a hundred times. So as you can see, the uh, Ark of the Covenant was inlaid with gold, and the tabernacle, which I always describe uh, is basically like a circus-sized tent uh, that traveled with the Hebrews uh, while they were wandering in the desert. This was their house of worship um, while uh, wandering in the desert for 40 years. But uh, in the description of both the Ark of the Covenant as well as uh, the tabernacle, uh, the word Gold is used in terms of the decorations, in terms of, of, of how it was constructed and everything else over a hundred times. Now, moving forward in history, later in, uh, in Jerusalem, King Solomon replaces the, the tabernacle with basically the brick and mortar of a temple. And in uh, 1 Kings chapter 6, we see again that the temple was decorated with gold, gold, and more gold. Both the tabernacle and the temple were the centers of worship where God dwelt with his people. But now I jump to the end of the Bible, to the book of Revelation, where the future dwelling place of God with his people is described as a heavenly city, as a new Jerusalem, where the streets are paved with... Right. So gold was, gold is appropriate for worshiping God. And gold was and gold is also honoring of a king. Um, Y'all know, a week ago was Christmas. Um, A little less than a little more. A week ago was Christmas. And um, my family, uh, we hosted the family and we all, uh, you were circled around uh, in our living room. And one of the gifts uh, that was given to my father and myself and my sister was this. Now, what I'm holding before you, you, can't you read the gold? Look at the gold writing. I don't think it's real gold. But um, this, uh, so my, my cousin, my cousin Eric uh, passed away in, um, in 2000, in, in basically summer of 2016. Uh, and he had been fighting cancer for many years. Uh, the last two years was uh, a real struggle. Um, and ultimately, it, w- it just turned into the reality that he was going to lose this, uh, his fight with cancer. But my cousin Eric, uh, long before Ancestry.com or anything like that, back in, ni- in the 70s when he was in high school, uh, started a love for family history. And uh, he was, I remember when I was a small child, he, he would come to family gatherings talking about and asking questions and, and writing stuff down. <clears throat> so his, he had three, so he had a, like a heart-to-heart conversation with his doctor, and his doctor just asked him, what are some things you want to accomplish uh, before you pass away? And, and the doctor, I mean, God bless him, basically said, I will do my best medically to try to keep you alive so that you can accomplish these things. And the three things he wanted to accomplish was go to his daughter's graduation um, from veterinary school, which he did, uh, attend his son's wedding, which he did, 
And, um, and the last thing he wanted to do was, was finish what I'm holding in my hand. And what, my, what, he's, what I'm holding in my hand is his mother's or my aunt's uh, on my side of the family, the Lucia family history. Um, from, and I haven't read it yet, to be honest with you. So I don't know how far back it gets, goes, but uh, it goes, it's, it's basically the Lucia family history is what I'm holding in my hand. So a very meaningful gift given to my father, my sister, and I um, this Christmas. <clears throat> now, I talk about this for a reason. Gold was and gold is an appropriate gift for honoring a king. One of the things that assure the legitimacy of a king is pedigree, is lineage, is genealogy, is Ancestry.com. Now, <laughs> 2,000 years ago, they didn't have Ancestry.com. But they, 2,000 years ago, they had two disciples, one named Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, and another named Luke. And both of those Gospels include genealogies of Jesus. Now, um, completely breaking the rules of writing 101, um, Matthew, because when you, I'm, I have been taught that when you are writing something, what you want to do is hook your reader as quickly as possible so that they will continue reading. Matthew, on the other hand, contrary to that, that wisdom, uh, begins his gospel with a genealogy of Jesus. Um, very, and I, I, <laughs> true story. My brother, in, when I was young, encouraged me to read the Bible. And I said, well, what should I read? Because I had never read the Bible. And he said, well, um, and he opened it up to Matthew and he said, read, read a gospel. And he just kind of like pitched me the Bible and walked out of the room and I started reading the genealogy. I'm like, what is this? And I was like maybe 12 years old, 10 years old. I, so I put the Bible down and didn't read it for another two years. <laughs> True. Just did not hook me. Now, what is the genealogy of uh, Matthew about? Ge the genealogy of Matthew follows what scholars would say is the adoptive father of Jesus because of the Immaculate Conception, Joseph. Joseph's line all the way back to King David. Now, Luke, on the other hand, three chapter, three or four chapters into Luke, um, he gives also a genealogy of Jesus, and he follows the, the family line on Mary's side of the family and goes all the way through history back to King David. Both of the genealogies in our uh, Gospels of Matthew and Luke are there to assure that Jesus' genealogy tracked back to King David. The Magi's gift of gold points to and elevates Jesus' identity to that of a king from the line of David. The Magi's gift of gold also points to Jesus' divine nature, that he was God in the flesh and worthy of worship. So that's gold. Number two on your outline. Why the gift of frankincense? Why the gift of frankincense? Well, as the name implies, frankincense is incense that is burned and is, when burned, it releases an aromatic fragrant smoke. Frankincense comes from the Buswellia 
cartery tree, which is found in parts of Africa and Arabia. And that's a picture of that tree behind me. Um, and aside, the, the, um, the places where this tree can grow, it occurred to me, would probably grow really well in Southern California as well. So I'm thinking we all go out and buy one of these trees and plant them in our backyard. Because I think it would be really cool, from this tree, if you, if you cut the bark and make incisions, you get this sap, which you see behind me. And it's from this sap that frankincense is made. In the Old Testament, we see that frankincense was used two ways, uh, both relating to the worship uh, inside the temple and the tabernacle preceding the temple. Um, these two ways. One was as incense. Uh, we just see that it was used um, in front of the altar. Incense would have been burned, um, and, uh, and the smoke of the incense would, would be rising up within the tabernacle and the, um, and, and the temple. Now, the second use of frankincense uh, was, was used, I think this is interesting. So in the temple, um, t- uh, sacrifices were made. And, and the Old Testament talks about all these different sacrifices. Sacrifices of bulls, sacrifices of, um, a- as we know with regards to our Christian uh, understanding of, of who Jesus was, the Lamb of God. The, the sacrifice of lambs were made at the temple as well. Um, and all of these uh, sacrifices were taken to the altar, altar and portions of them, and uh, to be honest with you, when, when you read the scriptures closely, they're the most fatty um, uh, parts of, uh, that, were, that were taken to the altar and burned. So they were consumed by fire. Now, in addition to uh, these types of sacrifices, there was also a grain offering. And the grain offering, uh, kind of like a, the first harvest kind of thing. You would, you would, you would have a harvest, and then that, that first harvest, you would make a, a grain offering to the Lord. Now, the, what, the Bible um, specifically gives the instructions of taking the grain and, and basically pulverizing it into a powder and then burning it as your, as your, as your grain offering. Now, what that means to us in, you know, uh, 20 almost 2018, um, is basically think of the flour that you use to bake a cake or make bread with. That's essentially what they were offering. Now, imagine yourself like taking that flour and trying to burn it. What would it smell like? I don't know. I've never burned flour, but I imagine it would just smell like smoke. Now, the interesting thing that, about the grain offering is that the, the specific instructions with regards to the grain offering was to add frankincense to the grain offering so that when the offering was made, right, it didn't smell like smoke, it smelled like incense. So uh, in our mind's eye, I, I want you to, with me, kind of travel into the temple. And, and this is what you would have, this is kind of the um, experiential uh, aspect, the, the tactile learner uh, that, that I know I am. But imagine going into the temple, and what you would have experienced was several things. And one is you probably would have been overwhelmed by all of the gold in there. And secondly, it, it, you would have been experiencing several things. And one of the things you would have seen is incense and other things being burned, and you would have seen smoke rising to the heavens, or another way to put that is rising into the presence of God. Now, in, 
I'm going to jump around here. But in, in contemporary worship, in our Orthodox Christians around the world, our brothers and sisters uh, in Christ, in their worship, they, use, they continue to use incense. And, and I want to just kind of uh, alert you to what that's about. It's about several things. But one is, what happens in worship when we worship and when we pray? It's this idea that when we're looking at the incense... And that smoke rising into the air. Our worship is rising into the presence of the Lord. When we pray, our prayers are rising up into the presence of God. That's what that visually is meant to communicate to us. And the, the scripture, um, if I can find it, in Leviticus uh, chapter 2, it talks about how aromatic that would be. Meaning it smells great because of the, of the frankincense, the incense. And so you have this wonderful, so we're walking, back to our imagination, we're walking into the temple, we're overwhelmed by this, this, the gold that is in here, and we're, we're seeing things and we're smelling things, and we're smelling that beautiful smell of, of incense, but you are also smelling uh, the, um, uh, the offerings of the lamb and, and the bull, that, that fattiness of that. And guess what that smells like? I've, I figured it out. It, it smells like Red's barbecue <laughs> plus walking into a Tommy Bahama. Think about it. That's what, it, what the experience would have been like. Now, having said all that, uh, this is what's happening in the worship space. And, and the people, the specific people that were, were uh, in charge of facilitating the worship life in the temple were the Le- Levitical priests. The little, the, they were the ones that were making sure that everything was lit, that everything was being taken care of the way it was supposed to be taken care of. And so um, what this gift of frankincense points to uh, for us, with better understanding Jesus' role, is that it points to Jesus' role as the perfect priest. Um, I say that because that's how, in the book of Hebrews, in, in the New Testament, the New Testament uh, authors were re- looking at Scripture and trying to continuously define who is Jesus and what is his role. And the book of Hebrews describes Jesus as the perfect priest who is perfectly worthy to go before God on behalf of the people, making an offering, as described in Leviticus chapter 2, that's pleasing to the Lord. Lastly, the gift of myrrh. Now, very similar to frankincense, myrrh comes from a tree that's resistant to the arid deserts of the Middle East and produces a, a, gum, a gummy sap. And it's from that sap that myrrh is produced. Now, from the Bible, we learn that myrrh was used in four distinctive ways. It was used for anointing. It was used for making perfume. It was used medicinally. And it was used for embalming. Now, for the sake of time, of those four ways, I'm only going to talk about two. The first is anointing. Outlined in Exodus chapter 30, myrrh was the key ingredient of, the the three key ingredients for anointing. And, and, And myrrh was the largest of these ingredients. Myrrh was mixed with cinnamon 
as well as olive oil and some other ingredients as well. But this liquid mixture was used to anoint and consecrate the items of worship. So in the temple, everything that was being used in that temple was anointed by this oil. Now, in addition to that, all of the priests that were serving in the temple were anointed with this oil of olive oil, cinnamon, and myrrh. Now, later in the New Testament, that same anointing oil was used to anoint the prophets and later the kings. Myrrh was used for anointing. It was also used for embalming. In John chapter 19, verse 39, um, following the death of Jesus, um, as his corpse is basically taken off uh, the cross, uh, we see two men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Um, now, if Nicodem- the name Nicodemus uh, rings a bell, Nicodemus in John chapter 3 makes an appearance late in the night to talk to Jesus privately. And uh, he has that conversation, Jesus has that conversation with him with regards to being born again, uh, which uh, resonates with many of us. So we see Nicodemus uh, come into Jesus' presence in chapter 3, and then at the end of Jesus' well, Jesus' ministry, at the end of Jesus' life, Nicodemus is there at the base of the cross along with uh, Joseph of Arimathea to collect his body. And it says that Nicodemus brought, imagine this, 75 pounds worth of uh, aloe oil, and we know what that is because we're Southern Californians, right? Aloe. Aloe mixed with myrrh. And this mixture of aloe uh, and myrrh was um, used for embalming uh, the, the body of Christ. Now, we, I'm going to jump to Easter. I know we just had Christmas, but I'm going to jump to Easter for a second, right? Because we, we talk, uh, the, the Easter story in the Bible talks about <clears throat> the, the, the disciples running into the empty tomb. And one of the things that is kind of noted is, is the cloths. Um, I'm going to even go into more details. I've always kind of imagined like they were just scattered all over the place. But it, uh, it, the Gospels actually describe them neatly folded at the, at the base of where he was laid. A very kind of interesting detail. Now, what we need to understand about those cloths is that those cloths would have been um, immersed with the aloe and myrrh. And so, I mean, I don't like going in this direction because I think it takes our imaginations to, in a weird direction. But the idea of Egyptian mummification is what we're talking about. It would have been aloe and myrrh dunked in this, these claws and then Jesus' corpse being wrapped into this. And we're not just talking about like a layer of clothing. We're talking about 75 pounds worth being wrapped inside. Now, this points to some of the miracle of his resurrection that I'm not going to go into it, but try, just trust me, wrap yourself up in 75 pounds of clothes and try to bust out of that. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) A miracle in itself. (laughs) So, uh, myrrh was used for anointing, uh, also used for embalming. The gift of myrrh used for anointing, again, points to the role of Jesus as king and, um, as, the, and as well as the perfect priest. Um, and for embalming, uh, the gift of myrrh obviously foreshadows 
the death on the cross uh, for our sin and brokenness on our behalf. So let me conclude with the following. The three gifts that were mentioned by name and given to this baby Jesus could have so easily been overlooked. However, when we examine them closely, we find that the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh both foreshadow and help us to better identify who Jesus is. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh are the three gifts given to Jesus to honor God in worship by the Magi. By their sacrificial giving, the Magi demonstrated who they believed Jesus to be. What about us? Today, I challenge us to consider what would be the modern equivalence of these three ancient gifts of worship. And when I consider this question, I, I kind of go through my mind's eye of the things that are most valuable to me. And I always circle back to three things, um, two of which are more valuable than perhaps the other for me. But that is time. The gift of time um, with our society and our lifestyles and how busy so many of us are. I think one of the biggest things and perhaps most difficult things for us to give is the gift of time. Um, The other would be, I would say, treasure, which is to say uh, giving from our finances. And certainly the Magi set the example of giving generously with their treasure. And lastly would be just the giving of our talents, uh, that God has gifted each and every one of us with unique talents that we can use to help build God's kingdom. Are we as generous today with the gifting, with gifting God our time and our treasure and our talents as these mysterious strangers from the east were when they gave their gold, their frankincense, and their myrrh.